Hello, listeners. I'm Steve Torns with Below the Radar, a knowledge democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. On this episode of Below the Radar, our host, Amjo Hall, is joined by Joni Lowe, independent curator and Vancouver-based writer. She is a Shirk Doctoral Fellow at SFU School for the Contemporary Arts, and her research creation focuses on artists accessing different ways of knowing, feeling, and remembering. They discuss Joni's new book, What Are Our Supports?, and 2018 curatorial project of the same name, as well as local artistic practices that makes Vancouver's art scene unique. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Hello, welcome to Below the Radar. Delighted that you could join us again this week. We have a special guest with us, Joni Lowe. Welcome, Joni. Hey, Am. Great to be here. Nice to see you. wonder if we can begin, Joni, with you introducing yourself uh, a little bit. Yes, my name is Joni Lowe, um, and I'm a writer, independent curator, and uh, doctoral student at SFU School for the Contemporary Arts in their inaugural doctoral research creation program. Writer, curator, critic. Is it fair to call you a critter? Yeah, call me a critter. <laughs> With the other than humans. Yeah. Yes. As you mentioned, you're a, you're a doctoral student and you've been writing on uh, visual art for, for almost a couple of decades now. So you know this community very well, but broadly the, the art community. And you've just released a book just a few weeks ago. Wondering if you can tell us a little bit about it. So it sounds like I'm carbon dating myself a little bit. <laughs> writing for decades. Yeah, so the project, we launched a book, uh, it's called What Are Our Supports? And it's an anthology with over uh, 20 local and international contributors. And What Are Our Supports was based on a project I did in public space in 2018, which involved five artist groups responding to the question of what are our supports during precarious times by situating their project in a booth by, made by Jermaine Coe. And um, uh, in terms of the how the project started out or was conceived of, uh, are there other things that inspired this project or was it already sort of planned to be a part of this project with, with Jermaine? Yeah, definitely there's a lot of inspirations. And just when I was walking here, I was thinking about them. Where do I start? I mean, the initial inspiration, I think for me, um, is my observation of artists' spatial practices in the city, and particularly artists that often work collectively, and they frequently uh, work as part of their practice to build support structures for community. So I'm thinking here, of course, of Jermaine Coe, uh, Conley, who's part of Instant Coffee, Drill Art Collective, uh, Tuitanatsis Weiss, Emily Neufeld, SF Ho. I mean, these are all artists that create space for art and to make those spaces possible for community. If you could speak a little bit to, I know Jermaine from around, she was just over my place a few months back when Michelle DeBrun was over. I'm wondering if you can speak a, a little bit to, you know, her art practice and the way um, this particular project uh, relates to the, the themes of the, of the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Jermaine is an artist I've long admired. I've known her, I think, since 2005, 2006. So that was when I worked at Center A, and she came to do a project called Overflow, which was basically taking 
all the bottles that had no economic value from United We Can and make it into a kind of shimmering, shifting installation that a lot of the people in the neighborhood, the downtown east side, interpreted as a memorial. Like they really took ownership of this installation and had a lot of, you know, very powerful responses to it. So I remember that because um, Ken Leote, who was the founder of United We Can, I'd met Jermaine already and had connected them up. And I remember going to see that show. It was a really beautiful show. Yeah. yeah. And so I've known her for a long time and I've always admired her practice, both in its ability, like very conceptually rigorous, aesthetically beautiful, but also in a way creating, you know, platforms for um social encounters, social engagements. And these are often incidental, unpredictable. I mean, I think of another of her works, Call, which is an old rotary telephone that sits in a gallery and you pick it up and you're connected with a stranger. And then that's an opportunity for encounter. So for Jermaine, I mean, I'd wanted to work with Jermaine. And um, actually, the project that predated what are our supports is a project called Afterlives. It was a two-person exhibition with Jermaine and Aaron Lewis Cohen that looked at, you know, asked the question, what are the afterlives, uh, material and conceptual afterlives of things that are outdated or considered as waste? And I was thinking about the afterlives of outdated technologies, outdated ideas and paradigms. And so the question of transformation was like, what else can these structures become and what else can maybe perhaps we as humans maybe as an outdated category also become so that was another inspiration for the project um, but i'll just say um maybe what i've enjoyed about germaine's practice and how i've watched it evolve is how you know she has a beautiful sculptural practice and over time she's really activated that practice to be socially engaged, to be like where the, say for instance, the structure that the projects happened in HMH Boothie is actually like it's a platform for engagement, for exchange, for connection. So her practice has evolved where her sculptural practice becomes a platform for engagement, becomes an opportunity for people to come together, exchange ideas, work together differently, um, build community. So I was super excited to work with her. Yeah, and Jermaine's so sporty. She did that project league. Uh, was it roller derby? Oh, yes. Uh, I think there was a boxing-related project in Toronto. Yes, that's yeah, a good yeah. one. That's a yeah. good one. Yeah, league is super interesting <laughs> in that I think they come together to play games, but they invent games. So there's no script. I mean, and I think this taps into um, something I wrote about in my introduction for the What Are Our Supports book is how she's interested in this idea of incidental aesthetics. So, you know, it's chance-based. It's not something that you can necessarily control. It's open-ended. It involves the audience as participants. Shout out to Jermaine Coe out on Salt Spring Island, <laughs> the pride and joy of Armstrong, B.C. Hey, Jermaine. <laughs> uh, so Khan, Khan Lee. So can you speak about his involvement in the project and also how his practice relates to some of these things that you've uh, encountered in the book? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, is it helpful if I do an overview sure, of the project? Yeah. And yeah, then maybe sure. we can jump into yeah. Khan's project because it is a super interesting one. So uh, as I was saying, these five artist projects, they 
they began with the question of what are our supports during, you know, environmentally, socially, politically precarious times? And how do artists attune us to the um, immaterial, relational, perhaps temporary um, support structures that are really quite crucial to the survival of art, space for art, and the survival of community and our commons. And so each artist took that question, you know, and interpreted it both like in the site-specific location, which was Cathedral Square Park, and within Germaine's booth in Cathedral Square Park. So I should say Cathedral Square Park is also itself a support structure. The fountain for this park is a cooling system for the power substation underneath. The park itself is, you know, kind of decrepit, outdated, overhang from Expo 86. You know, now it has this beautiful mural um, by Deborah Sparrow, uh, Chief Janice George and Angela George blanketing the city, which we can touch on. Um, but by and large, it's an underused, very odd downtown park. We were also interested in that area because it was sort of an area on the crest of gentrification downtown. Like it didn't really have an identity across the street from it is the Holy Rosary Cathedral. A little bit further down, there was a vacant lot that has since now it's Amazon headquarters. Um, and then Kitty Corner um, to that was the Canada Post building, which, as you know, now is I think also going to include Amazon plus like three condo towers. So we're interested in, you know, the politics of the neighborhood, the gentrification, spatially how it was changing. And then also a bit further down, um, and this connects with the Ore Gallery, uh, is the BC Hydro building. And of course, BC Hydro is this huge towering building that was, you know, it is right next to the Del Mar Inn, which was the former home to the Ore Gallery, and which has for decades long been a space, a support structure for art. Through the Riz family, that's been a space for low rent and for art on the ground floor. Um, and that resisted, you know, BC Hydro's attempts to buy it out, bulldoze it and create, you know, another one of their towers. So in many ways, like they're kind of like this nail house or this support structure for values that that is still standing. And yeah, as you mentioned, Catherine, Walter's piece, Unlimited Growth Increases the Divide. We were very much thinking about that and responding to that too. And there used to be the uh, 411 Dunce Mirror, which used to be the seniors um, center, which used to be a kind of workers organizing center in the 30s, but then they had to sell the the building, the group of nonprofit organizations that were there. That was right, um, right around the corner. Right around the corner. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's cool to think about um, as well structures, um, you know, and think about this question around afterlives, like structures that have outgrown their intended uses, what else they can become. And, you know, we've been, you know, 312 Maine as being a former police station and now being like uh, a cultural precinct or um, a hub of nonprofits. I mean, I think that's one example of... Yeah, that kind of trying to shift from uh, negative symbolic capital to something else in terms of uh, use of this space, but also uh, you know, complex renovation and all of those things. It's an ongoing, it's an ongoing project. These things are never done in, in a way, and uh, it's the art of making unfinished, I guess. The art of making unfinished, the open-ended assemblage. 
And so the five artist groups each took the booth and interpreted it in different ways, according to the thematics. HMH Boothy. Jermaine designed the booth to be both a sort of critique of the restrictions in affordable space in our city for art, for living. So it's a very small booth. It's like a telephone booth, three by three by seven. And she also designed it as, you know, kind of thinking about the cultural associations of the telephone booth, like say, The Matrix, Doctor Who, as a sort of Superman, as this portal or sort of uh, a point of exchange or a point of transformation. So all of the artists approached Boothy as a sort of, you know, something that's very malleable in identity and use. And so what else could it become? And um, they took Boothy and interpreted it in a variety of ways, like Afterlife's Currency, which was with Jermaine. And Aaron, they utilized the booth as a currency exchange, uh, transforming electronic waste into currency made from that waste. Emily Neufeld and Toitanat Weiss transformed the booth into indigenous ecosystem. So within it were all the plants um, that are local to the area, sort of envisioning the city before the city. SF Ho with Lisa Ferrari changed it into a surveillance portal thinking about codes of belonging within the park, like who belongs in public space and who doesn't, and all the sort of invisible codes that determine that. And Drill Art Collective. Drill Art Collective um, transformed the booth into um, a light box. So they they basically were thinking about, their project was called Regrounding the Footnotes, and they were thinking about the ground beneath us as a sort of support structure and those sort of overlooked surfaces which we walk on every day so they took rubbings of all the sort of the surfaces in the area and thinking about you know the architecture of the cathedral across the street made these rubbings into sort of uh, psychedelic patterns and uh, transformed it into a light box and then Khan Lee worked with Andrew Lee and Francis Cruz and they transformed the booth into the People's Salon, which was basically a free salon, a, a hair salon offering uh, free haircuts to the public. So then I got to con eventually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wanted to shout out to all the artists project. Mm-hmm. In terms of, you know, previous books that have been written about Vancouver art, this is a very different type of uh, project in many ways. You know, there's Vancouver Anthology was capturing, you know, a, a moment in the artist-run center uh, scene that um, Stan Douglas edited that that volume. Uh, Melanie O'Brien did the Vancouver Art and Economies. And uh, I'm wondering, um, you know, this is different than, than those, but were there other pieces of writing that sort of influenced um uh, this project and the kind of the stakes of the themes in this book, you know, the why, the why now of why these questions are percolating at the moment within uh, the art community here. It's interesting you mentioned those other anthologies because, you know, when we were working on this book and I co-edited it with art historian Jeff O'Brien, who used to live here, he's since re- relocated to Santa Barbara, California, but we were thinking about Vancouver and Vancouver histories and how difficult it is for our generation to write that kind of history, in part because of the affordability of the city that 
disperses populations. Like a lot of people move away, they come back. So it's, there's a lot of interruptions. Community is still here, but it's a lot perhaps less cohesive than it feels to be in Vancouver anthology or Vancouver art and economies. But I still agree with you in that I think this anthology comes at a moment in time where we're looking at practices in Vancouver and in particular how they create community during precarity. Like how do these artists practice continue to create space for art to happen despite it all? And so, I mean, I'm really interested in, you know, these artists' practices in part like it's not necessarily a cohesive school, like Vancouver Photo Conceptual School. And these are artists often that work, you know, in different disciplines, like in sound and, you know, sculptural practice, also a socially engaged practice. So they're not just socially engaged artists. They're they're quite holistic in their practices. So I wanted to really, you know, highlight a sort of spirit that I see that I've seen in Vancouver since I've been active in the community that I think people hadn't written a lot about and the undergirding of that spirit is support. I'm wondering in terms of the different um, roles you've had within the visual arts community from working at Center A to writing projects and and other roles and now as a a doctoral student you've uh, been immersed inside of this community for so long. How did that sort of benefit or influence you in terms of conceiving of this project um, in this particular way? I think I mentioned in my introduction as well, it's like when I first started living life in art, like working and living alongside it, um, and I date that experience to working at Center A, you know, I was always encouraged by artists, practices who, you know, they continue to pursue the quest of art first and foremost, less so arts, you know, conspicuous rewards. And these are artists that are consciously focused on the ideas, the experience, and the knowledge that making art can bring. And with that is a lot of unknowns, but consciously, I think, not positioned in the market. And what I admire about these artists' practice is like really their tenacity in continuing to create space for art that feels free, that is really you know, not, and it's so hard not to be entangled in like neoliberal capitalism um, and the way, you know, it really, it fuses itself into our lives. But I feel like these artist practices continually do that. I wanted to ask you about, uh, we chatted this before we started recording, just around this theme of friendship. There's a quote in the in the book as well around assemblages uh, by Anna Lohenhauptsing. Assemblages don't just gather life ways, they make them. And I'm wondering if you can sort of speak a little bit to kind of this notion of friendship and generosity and sociality that uh, come up in the in the book. Yes. Okay. So I... I love Anna Lohenhop Singh's writings, and I was thinking a lot about her writings, both in how she talks about assemblages and how she talks about living through precarity. And I feel like a lot of the artists' projects and practices reflect this spirit of working through precarity to find answers on how to live and also creating 
these assemblages. And so Annett Singh writes, assemblages are open-ended gatherings on the ecologies of varied species. Assemblages don't just gather life ways, they make them. Thinking through assemblage urges us to ask, how do gatherings sometimes become happenings that is greater than the sum of their parts? If history without progress is indeterminate and multi-directional, might assemblages show us its possibilities? I mean, what I love about this quote, I mean, I think it very much captures these artists' practices. And I think about the projects and what are our supports as sort of maybe a snapshot of these longer strands of, you know, their practices before and since that are creating support structures in our community. Like coming together, I think the way we did in Cathedral Square Park in and around these projects, like be it the Currency Project with Tremaine Cohen, Aaron Lewis Cohen, where they were inviting members of the public to bring in their electronic waste, and then they smelted it on site into these little coins that were meant to be a kind of future currency made from waste, a kind of like post-capitalist economy kind of existence. Or like um, the People's Salon where, you know, people came in or, you know, would be tourists, students. I think there was a guy that just got out of jail stopping to get their haircuts. I mean, this is an assemblage that is unpredictable. It's open-ended. It brings together a host of different publics. Um, and the artist is not really in control of the outcome or the composition or the discoveries that are made with those publics. So I think of those, you know, those projects very much as assemblages and the power of art, you know, kind of to transform everyday life, be it through care or be it through thinking about how, you know, like currency is or is not a support structure for our existence. And also, you know, the kind of stories that emanate from that afterwards. I also think about, you know, assemblage within like the artist's practices in a longer thread. So, I mean, like since this project, all of these artists have continued to be active in their practices, creating support structures for community. Like I think of Jermaine's um, current project, creating floating artist studios. SF Ho did a beautiful project, a curatorial project called Slow Wave, which was about bringing LGBT Q2IA um, identified artists to a retreat on, I believe it was Gabriola Island. I think of Emily Newfeld's efforts in Value Co-op to, you know, provide living wage for artists and helping to unionize arts workers. So, and Cease Weiss, you know, and uh, her creation of Indigenous food forests. So, I mean, that's another way I think of the assemblage is like how it was highlighted in these projects, but how they've continued since in communities, not necessarily the art community, but, and also, and not necessarily always legible as art, but to create support structures through art for, you know, community. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting word and uh, assemblage. It comes uh, also in a lot of the literature and friendship in community from Jean-Luc Nancy to uh, Derrida to um, Leela Gandhi's work on effective communities. Jasbir Puar has spoken about it related to queer nationalism and homo nationalism. And uh, I don't know if it comes up in Mbembe or not, but what he, he might not use that term, but there's certainly um, relevance there. So I, I like how that circulates in the, in the, in the book as well. I wonder if you could speak a little bit to uh, Cease's uh, um, role in the, in the project as well. 
Yeah, so Cease had two roles. I mean, one was her involvement in Commonplace, which was a project by Emily Neufeld. And so Cease was a consultant for that. And she also, you know, as a media artist, Indigenous ethnobotanist, spoke a lot to the Indigenous plants that were in the ecosystem. And then she also, for the publication, which we worked on during the pandemic, I invited her to write a poem. And so her poem is kind of like right at the forefront. It's called These Futures Are Waiting. And um, and her poem speaks to both the ancient knowledges that are of this place. And he, she's Squamish, Stolo, Hawaiian descent. And also speaks to the ways in which nature is communicating to us the answers that we need for the future. So, I mean, I think there's a part in her poem where she says, our telecommunications have been with us for millennia. And she points to like the birds and the trees and, you know, all these messengers that have the wisdom that we need to move forward. So, yeah, I'm really honored to have her in the project. And I've known her for a number of years. I think when I met her when I first worked on Laiwan's project for the CBC Wall, but always as someone who just has a wealth of knowledge and insight about listening to nature, listening to the land, and having that sort of like other than human knowledge carry us forward. She mentioned she wrote the poem um, just before the launch. She was telling me she wrote the poem in situ. So she went and she sat in Cathedral Square Park and she looked at it sort of like decrepit nature. And then she looked around at you know, the plants and then she imagined you know, what was there before. So it, when you read it, you really get the sense that of that presence. Joni, so you've been uh, doing your doctoral work for a little while now. I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to um, kind of what you're, what you're doing for your, your project and your research right now. Well, as I mentioned just before we started, a lot of my interests in my current topic came out of this project because I, I've long been interested in artists that work intermedially and that intermingle different media and different senses in their work to sort of, you know, convey an idea, expression, a sensibility. What I realized in this project, and which relates to my current work at SFU, is this sort of like notion of sensing otherwise. So how are artists intermingling the senses or intermingling media to really sense otherwise um, towards different ways of knowing feeling and remembering. And um, what I found in reflecting on this project is, you know, the artists, all the projects are, you know, like engage different senses, like not just the visual, like it could be the tactility of the indigenous ecosystem, you know, the sonic nature of, you know, the performances that were done around drill art collectives, uh, regrounding the footnotes or the people's salon. And really just kind of, you know, with SFO's project, sensing, you know, invisible codes of belonging. Like, how do we do that? And so it kind of brought me to this question of, you know, it's like, you know, we, we live in an ocular-centric world, slick technical perfection, you know, a world that really kind of privileges the visual over the other senses. But what happens when, despite this looking 
slick, perfect, and what have you, our, our other senses tell us otherwise, that something's not right. And, you know, be that smell, touch, taste, or, you know, a kind of intuition, a sixth sense. And so my observation of these artists' practice, which I very much see as research in public, you know, experimenting with unknown outcomes was, you know, like how do how do artists, how are artists sensing otherwise and gesturing towards maybe a world that's alongside, a world that we need to sort of bring into fruition and manifest, you know, making worlds um, and building different futures. So my current research at SFU is about that. The way I've proposed it entering the program is an exhibition. So it's research creation. So part of it will be an exhibition. A part of it will be a dissertation. Maybe that will be a publication. But around artists who are are sensing otherwise in perhaps, you know, in different ways, neurodiverse, multisensory, intermedial, towards these different ways of knowing. And I'm also interested in how, like, the kind of synesthetic resonances that these projects have with neuroscience and increasingly somatic therapy. Maybe that's all I'll say about my research right now. Yeah, I just around the, the neuroscience um, yeah. part, could you speak to that a little bit? I know, of course, uh, Catherine Malibu has some work related to neuroscience, but what areas you're looking at? Increasingly, like, I, I am interested in maybe the like the sort of parallels between art intermingling the senses and um, how neuroscience and somatic therapies are getting at like the the greater connections between my body in healing and healing from trauma and in neuroscience like I've definitely was reading Catherine Malibus that's how I got into like the brain and you know how mapping like with neuroscience, mapping some of these affective reactions, um, we can see and evidence how like affect works and how healing works, healing from trauma. So I've been reading Bessel van der Kolk and I've been increasingly getting into somatic therapy. So I was looking at Peter Levine, um, somatic experiencing and, um, Adrian Mary Brown, who is uh, works in generative somatics, in terms of how she's also been a guest on our podcast. That's yeah. right, because yeah. she won an award through SFU last year. Yeah, yeah, somatics as as a way of healing the body, um, bodies of color, uh, bodies that say don't fit into ideas of quote unquote normal in 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 capitalist white. Um, heteropatriarchy. So I know it's a big topic. I'm still working through it. But um, one of the things that I I really appreciate about somatics increasingly, it doesn't mean I won't get like, you know, back into neuroscience, but just as is that it, um, yeah, it just, it, it looks at sensory, like how the body and the senses are experiencing the world. Um, and for in, increasingly for artists, of color or minoritized perspectives, which is part of my interest. How have they been affected and how are they utilizing the body, uh, the inner support structures, the embodied support structures to guide them towards what feels right, what feels like the worlds that they want to live in and the worlds they want to create. 
wondering if there's any other projects that you're working on now that you wanted to, to talk about. I don't know, putting out a book is enough and working on yeah. your dissertation, but you strike me as someone who's working on other stuff too, or potentially in the future. <laughs> I'm just focusing on resting right now. <laughs> uh, yeah, fair enough, fair enough. That's good. But um, yeah, we just launched this book in January, so I'm just going to rest and I'm going to focus on my coursework, my doctoral studies. So building up my list, maybe I'll get some of those um, those authors that you mentioned. Well, I'd love to. I've been teaching a class on friendship and community. I can send you the syllabus. Yeah, yeah. And what I wanted to add actually about friendship, because um, you had asked sort of like in relationship to assemblage and friendship and solidarity. Another text in this book is uh, Celine Condorelli's Notes on Friendship. And uh, she talks about friendship as a medium and friendship as as political, as a way of living and working together in this world. And um, I very much think that these practices embody that, like they utilize that as a medium. And I talk about, you know, like materializing the social, uh, but they utilize it as a medium to make art with and to make community with. So I, I definitely think friendship is very important. Uh, Joni, anything you'd like to add? Maybe I'll just add uh, a little bit about the additional contributors in the book, you know, how they came to be a part of the project, because like during during the pandemic, you know, we realized that a lot of these questions that we were asking about, like supports during times of precarity, modes of self-organization, mutual aid really resonated with these projects in 2018. And so in discussion, my co-editor, Jeff O'Brien and I, we thought, well, why don't we enlarge this conversation and include, you know, additional thinkers, feelers, contributors who both think about support in their in their research or their practices and, and bring them together in the anthology. So in addition to artist contributions, um, the anthology also includes commissioned uh, poems and essays. So we have a really lovely poem by Charlene Vickers. Uh, we are all given boxes. Um, I mentioned Cease's poem. Uh, Otonia Juliana Okokbitek wrote a poem about, you know, the before and the after the city. And um, and then we have essays by Jeff Dirksen, by Paula Booker, that are looking at things like public time as our support. That's Jeff's essay. Paula writes about land as a support structure. And then we kind of rounded out the anthology. Like, we were thinking you know, in, in the wider expanse of time and wider communities of, you know, like people that are writing about supports. And um, of course, Celine Condorelli's support structures had been a big inspiration for the project. Um, so we were able to include some of her texts and reprint them. And uh, Leanne Bettis-Samosa K. Simpson, her writings on uh, colonialism, settler colonialism as a series of processes, like a, a sort of scaffolding that work to uphold the structure. And we thought that was really like a really great fit in talking about, you know, invisible structures um, that support and invisible structures that do not support and that we need to find ways to nimbly sort of react against, you know, that series of complex processes in order to build the worlds we want to see. And for Leanne, you know, it is about like 
grounded normativity and indigenous resurgence. And, I, you know, we just love the way she talks about that. She frames colonialism as this sort of shape-shifting process that, you know, we need to react against in order to shift the larger structure. And I think that was something that Marianne Nicholson also mentioned in your last yeah, podcast yeah. that really resonated with me when I was listening last night. So um, so anyways, just to say a little bit about the additional contributors. Yeah, well, interestingly, um, we interviewed Leanne in a book that I'm working on with my friend Matt on friendship and community. And uh, Jeff Trickson just uh, came to my class to read some poems related to the class. So we've got some overlap here. Yeah, right. definitely. <laughs> and just some amazing thinkers. Thank you so much for joining us on Below the Radar, Joni. Thanks, Sam. Thanks for inviting me. Below the Radar is a knowledge democracy podcast created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. This has been our conversation with Joni Lowe. Head to the show notes to find Joni's book, What Are Our Supports?, and to read up on some of the resources mentioned in this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to Below the Radar on your podcast listening app of choice. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Below the Radar. <laughs>